You're listening to Group, a podcast about mental illness and mental health. This is the show for the Warriors. Oh, he's running a little late. He got held up at work. Or maybe he's dead. Oh, God, he's dead! The hypochondriacs. You're imagining your symptoms. 100% psychosomatic. And the people feeling a little on edge. I'm, I'm a hammock, a hammock. Just gently flowing in the, in, in the breeze. I must tell you, Larry, you don't seem to be gently flowing in the breeze. To the folks who need a break, we're here to let you know we understand. Yeah, right please don't psychoanalyze me right You're now. Okay. To those who are looking for direction, we're here to share some advice. By communicating with a properly certified horse, you can unpack your toxic emotions and move more quickly through the grieving process. Our goal is to tell your stories, to make you laugh, and to give you an audio hug through your earbuds. I'm Rebecca Lee Douglas, your resident anxious person, and I'm here with group friendopist, clinical social worker Catherine Dury. Hello. Hello, Catherine. How are you doing? How's your anxiety level? Um, I'm all right. I'm battling a bit of a cold, so everything's just kind of in a fog. Yes, I'm at uh, the end, I think the tail end of the cold, so if we both sound like a little bit uh, raspy, raspy. <laughs> yeah, jinx, if my sentences just kind of trail off. <laughs> Are you doing anything in particular to, like, take care of yourself now that you uh, you have this lingering cold? Well, particularly as we move into the winter months, I'm trying to avoid sickness as much as possible, taking echinacea, lots of vitamin C, resting. What is echinacea? It boosts your immune system. My mom used to put it in our orange juice as kids. I have to get me some echinacea because I tend to, like... Get whatever weird stuff is on the subway usually like infects me. Yeah, it does help. So no science writer Ian Chan today. He is getting ready for his wedding. This is our November episode, uh, which <laughs> November is the start of a string of holidays, obviously about food and family. Holidays in general can cause a lot of anxiety for people, but like... Right. Just the family piece can be overwhelming and and bring up a lot (laughs) and cause news, dramas and crises. And I would say it was particularly awful for folks who have issues with food or Mm -hmm. dealing with a disorder centered around food, uh, because then you have that like double whammy. Right. There tends to be an expectation with the holidays that you're going to kind of pig out on... Thanksgiving and Whatever's sweets there. and yeah, cookies, like, yeah, and yeah, that it's part of spending cooking. time with the family, right? Uh-huh. So group today is about one of those uh, disorders, an eating disorder. It's um, not one of the more talked about disorders, uh, anorexia, bulimia, or binge eating disorder. This is a disorder was, which was actually just added to the DSM in 2013. Not a lot is known about it, and unlike disorders like anorexia or bulimia, it has nothing to do with body image. So it's Avoidant Restrictive Food Intake Disorder, or ARFID. So we're going to be referring to it as ARFID throughout the podcast. But um, yeah, one of the standout qualities of ARFID is that most people with this disorder will only eat like a handful of different types of food, of very specific food. And some people will only eat like one or, or two types of food. So coming up, we'll speak with three different folks whose lives have been affected by ARFID. We'll hear from Robert Rund, who went years eating a modified version of Ronald McDonald's dream. There was only one thing I would eat, and that was hamburger and french fries, and the hamburger had to have no bun. We'll speak with Morgan Ashley Gale, a 20-year-old graphic design student who cannot emphasize enough how challenging it is for her to add a new food to her diet. If someone is encouraging me to eat something that I feel like I can't eat, it feels like I am standing in front of a brick wall and someone is telling me to walk through the brick wall and they're not understanding that I can't walk through the brick wall like it's a wall. And we'll speak with Erin Kreck, the mother of a 10-year-old boy with ARFID, about some of the unique sensory experiences associated with the disorder. When he was young, he would have trouble walking in sand or grass or anything different on his feet. As he grew older, the tags in his clothes, clipping his nails, even brushing his teeth, everything is so sensitive to him that it's very difficult just to get those basic tasks done. And we'll hear from two mental health professionals about why it might be that these folks have such difficulty performing one of the most basic functions to live. 
So in, in normal development, there's usually a, a limited diet in, in young kids generally. Um, so Catherine, were there like weird things that you wouldn't eat growing up or did you have like a specifically limited diet? No, I was a pretty good eater as a child. I would eat pretty much anything. That's awesome. Um, Your parents must have been like very happy. <laughs> we loved fruits and vegetables in my household. We were kind of a strange family. My baby brother, though, I swear for the first six years of his life, only ate Oreos and marshmallows. <laughs> so today we <laughs> today we blame that for the reason why he's so bow-legged. <laughs> Were your parents like okay with that, or did they try and force him to to eat other things? Um, I mean, he's the youngest of four, so at that point, it was like, yeah, okay, eat these Oreos for dinner, whatever. Yeah. Um. So I I'm not really uh, I I wouldn't call myself a picky eater at all today, but growing up, there were a lot of things that I didn't eat. Like mm. I didn't things that I love now. Like I didn't eat pizza. I didn't like pizza growing up. I didn't like the tomato sauce part of it. That taste was too strong for me. Uh, I didn't like tomato sauce and spaghetti. I just wanted to eat like the plain pasta with butter and Parmesan cheese. I didn't like donuts. I actually I remember being like disgusted by donuts. You know, I didn't really like donuts either. Or I didn't like like sweets. I didn't oh, like really? frosting. Yeah. That seems like something that a child would love. Right, uh, right. On Sundays, uh, my dad would go and get like a box of donuts and bring it back to the house and everybody else in my family would be so psyched and I, I would just be like, ew, gross. I didn't even like the way they smelled. Mm. Um, I didn't like chocolate cake. Um, I only wanted vanilla cake, vanilla icing. Oh, or like just like chocolate in general. Like my mom would make bake um, chocolate chip cookies and she would always like I'd always ask her to bake like a few without chocolate chips in it because I just wanted the sugar cookies. Um, but yeah, it's like all these things that I, I, I don't know, like I, I guess I grew out of and most people will like grow out of this stage of development and like start eating a broader range of things. Right. And I think it's partly your taste buds developing, right? Where they're not quite as sensitive to some of these stronger oh, flavors. Oh, wow. You know, if you think of like wine and coffee and oh, some yeah, of those yeah, things yeah. that as children, it's like, that's disgusting. I could never eat that. We all know some people who didn't really grow out of that palate that they had as a child. So right. if you're if you're one of those people and you're wondering if you might have ARFID, um, there are some major differences between having ARFID and just being a picky eater. I spoke with Dr. Evelyn Atia, who runs the Eating Disorders Research Group at Columbia University Medical Center, uh, to see if she could sort of break down the difference for us. ARFID goes beyond the picky eating that we may see in some uh, children, in some adults for that matter. And what makes ARFID different is the level of medical or nutritional difficulty that ensues because of the particularly severe restriction. They may be very sensitive to some sensory aspects of eating. They may be very sensitive to the smell of a food or the feel of a food in their mouth. Uh, someone may have a fear of a particular food or a range of foods or an element of eating. They may have a fear of choking. They may have a fear of vomiting. There are uh, some difficulties that really take us beyond I kind of prefer a bland food, right? If someone can get all of their nutrients in with a little bit of pickiness, that's not ARFID. Uh, this is really a more severe condition. Because this disorder isn't that well known uh, and it can like initially look like picky eating at first, I think a lot of parents dealing with ARFID kids will like do the thing where they try to force their kids to to eat the the new foods. So it sounds like like Catherine, you didn't really have to weren't forced to eat your vegetables because you were like voluntarily eating the vegetables. There is one photo of me sobbing at the dinner table because I really didn't want to eat a piece of fish that my parents had put in front of me. But I I think I liked fish. It was just You're something just emotional mood. going on within <laughs> me at the time. Yeah, I, I have a I have a memory of like uh, there were peas on the dinner plate, which I, I think I grew to like. I mean, peas are like sweet. They're something that I think are great now. But yeah, um, yeah I remember my mom having me sit at the dinner table until um, I tried the peas. She was like, you just have to, you just have to try it, try it. You'll like it, try it, you'll like it. That's my, that's my mom. <laughs> Sometimes, especially for toddlers, I mean, it's part of, too, them like asserting themselves yeah. and like I'm a different person 
person than you are mm, and no. you can't tell me to, what to like. Yeah. So, I mean, there's that organically, usually like that tension between parents and child, but mm. quite often parents, like if they have children that have ARFID, don't know that they're dealing with like somebody who maybe has like a, has yeah. a, a disorder. So, um, that sort of dinner table tension happened a lot with Morgan Ashley Gale, who is a 20 year old art student, uh, with ARFID. My mom and I have this story. It sounds really bad, but we laugh about it. But one time, um, she was trying to make me eat something, and I didn't want to eat. It was a smoothie. She made a smoothie for me, and I ended up in a headlock, and she was telling me to eat it, or I, or you won't get out of this headlock, and I was crying and going, I'm not going to eat it. And I'm guessing you won. I'm guessing <laughs> yeah, you won. Yeah, I did win. Um, <laughs> there was one time um, that was less funny. I forget what the food was, but my mom told me that I wasn't going to be allowed to eat anything else unless I ate this food, and I kind of looked at her in the eyes, and I told her that I guess I would starve to death then, in a completely serious Mm -hmm. voice. And she left the room and cried, and I think that's probably when I started going to therapy, now that I think about it. Yeah. (laughs) So, can you go through your list of the current safe foods that that you have now? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, I every day I usually eat waffles for breakfast. Uh, for lunch I have a peanut butter sandwich or a grilled cheese sandwich or macaroni and cheese. There's the bread and cheese theme there. And then for dinner, it's usually one of those things. I also have other food like snack foods like pizza and uh, crackers and stuff like that. But I don't really have a lot of different things that I eat. I, I like to say that I'm, like, a carvitarian because, like, I don't really eat meat, but I'm not, like, a vegetarian or anything. <laughs> How does it compare, you know, what you sort of eat now to when your disorder was, like, the, the worst that it's been in your life? Well, I actually used to hate grilled cheese sandwiches, and when my mom made them for me, I'd sneak them into the trash can when she wasn't looking. <laughs> so I, did, I didn't used to have many things at all um it was mostly just bread i used to eat sandwiches that were just butter so um tell me what happens like physically and psychologically if you're trying to eat something that is not um you know one of the foods that you uh told us about um so it feels if someone is encouraging me to eat something that i feel like i can't eat it feels like i am standing in front of a brick wall and someone is telling me to walk through the brick wall, and they're not understanding that I can't walk through the brick wall like it's a wall. Um, like, it feels like it's not something edible, and if I eat it, a lot of times I'll, like, choke on it. Um, my chest feels really tight from my anxiety. Um, it's, oh, it's not It's not pleasant. <laughs> so how does your brain, like, when you're looking at you know, like a Caesar salad, if you're looking at a Caesar salad, like how, how are you processing that salad? Like, what does that salad look like to you? For me, it would be like, oh, it's like crunchy, fresh vegetables. What is it? Mm-hmm. What is it like for you? <laughs> the only way I can describe it is just fear. <laughs> like, yeah, I'm just looking at it. And it's like, it's an object, but it's not like, it's not like something I feel like is food I can eat. So, and then you'll literally, like, you would have, like, a choking response if you tried to force yourself to eat the uh, a piece of lettuce or something. Like, you would literally choke on it, right? A lot of times, yes. It's really interesting how Morgan describes the way that she views foods that she feels aren't safe. It's almost like the part of her brain that tells her that it's not okay to eat, like, a rock yeah. or a branch, a tree branch or something. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. I, um, there was this episode of 2020, I think. Yeah. It's actually the episode that Morgan uh, and her family were watching together when she first realized that she had Arvid. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the woman featured in the episode only ate French fries. And she talks about how, uh, when she looks at food, that's not a French fry. It's, it's, it's just like looking at a stick. It's like, yeah. Yeah, the neurobiology of the disorder. I mean, I know at this point they don't know that much about it, uh-huh. but in the future that'll be interesting because it sounds like 
her brain is sending her a message that's meant for something else. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it's, it's really interesting. She, it's just seems like she, yeah, she's processing it in a completely different way. I'll post that video, um, the 2020 clip on the website grouppodcast.com. So I spoke with another individual who has a similar reaction to foods that aren't on his safe list. My name is Robert Rund. I have had ARFID my whole life. I live in Asheville, North Carolina, and I have three kids. And of those three kids, at least one of them has fairly severe ARFID, and one other has a variation of it, and the third has no seemingly ARFID traits at all. Like Morgan, it's challenging for Robert to actually physically eat new food. First of all, my gag reflex starts before the food even will get into my mouth. Second of all, just the anxiety around needing to try. I can, I'm getting anxious just thinking about it. <laughs> Having gone to several meals at people's homes, which I try to avoid, but if, if somebody's home cooking, you certainly have to make an effort to try or at least tell them up front what your situation is and see if they'll modify what they're preparing. But I can remember a few situations where I, where the people were kind of insistent that I eat or try something and it, you know, started sweating and feeling completely anxious. And then knowing that I just had to do it, um, I went ahead and did it, but it certainly was everything I could do not to gag or spit, spit the food back up. Um, can you sort of walk me through what you will eat in a normal day? Sure. Um, well, I just started a diet, so okay. <laughs> I'm trying to, what I tell you today is not the same as what I would have told you. Okay. Grilled chicken, uh, grilled steak, grilled hamburger. I would say any combination thereof for breakfast, lunch, or dinner. Mm-hmm. Um, I do eat, just to try to be somewhat healthy, I do eat um, leaves of, I call them leaves because they don't look like salad to me. It's just arugula leaves, spinach leaves, uh, or, you know, a spring mix, or they just look like I went out into the backyard and picked a bunch of leaves. But so to me, all of those kind of leafy things, I'll try to eat that plain with pepper on it. Uh-huh. Um, was that different than uh, previously before you started your diet? If you asked any of my friends from my entire life, um, what would you say about Robert in terms of his eating? They would all say chicken fingers and French fries. Every single one of my friends would tell you that because that's what I would get every single place we'd ever go. So are you able to sit with uh, other folks if they're eating a, a food that makes you uncomfortable? For the most part, yes. For the most part, yes. That is something that's gotten better over the years, and particularly if whatever they're eating is has a strong scent to it. My son will actually they'll leave the table or if his sister gets a, then they're twins. She's, she's, she's completely omnivorous and he is just like me. And, um, if, if he's sitting at the table and, and, uh, she, if she's sitting next to him and he, she puts the food on his plate on her plate that he would not eat, he will move his location at the table or leave the table. So yeah. do you do you, would you describe it more as like a like a fear or like not processing certain foods as edible? Could you try to explain it to listeners who like they're trying to wrap their heads around what it is? Sure. And I I've come to understand it more as a manifestation of an anxiety disorder. With anxiety, I have two of my three kids also have anxiety disorders. It also happens to be the two kids that have some element of ARFID. Mm-hmm. Um but but they're anxiety might manifest in other ways. Um, and some of those things would be specific phobias. And um, for me, um, I don't know why this has been the case. It's been the case since I was a little boy. I can remember my mother always saying to me that I would never eat uh, in between the liquids and I never ate the the next step, the uh, 
what we call pureed type mm-hmm. baby foods. I had to go straight to salads and there were only, th- there was only one thing I would eat and that was hamburger and French fries and the hamburger had to have no bun. So she would cut up, you know, a hamburger. Um, and in order for me to get a French fry, I had to eat the hamburger. So that wasn't even my first choice. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I, I think from, from a very young age, for me, it was about certain textures, certain colors, certain food groups, but textures is probably the biggest thing mm-hmm. um, that I'm very sensitive to. So what textures are you most comfortable with? And then which textures are, are just completely, you know, uh, off the table for you? Fruits are really, really tough for me. I, I have grown to eat bananas. I don't love them and they have to be exactly the right ripeness mm-hmm. um, for me. They have to be more solid than mushy. But once something gets mushy, uh, I'm not interested at all. For whatever reason, white foods are strange for me. I, I will eat potato, but any kind of white condiment or so it's not just textures. It is, it can be, I've noticed it can be colors. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll eat broccoli, but I won't eat cauliflower, <laughs> um, which to me looks just like a white piece of broccoli. So I think, I think of it more um, like an anxiety disorder that manifests in certain, uh, certain phobias. Curious to know if this exists like cross cultures, because so far we're seeing a bit of a pattern with the fried foods. Yeah. And- starches. Yeah. Um, it, it is, it is really interesting. I know that there are a lot of experts looking into it in the UK. Hmm. I, I mean, I haven't heard about ARFID elsewhere, but that, that would be interesting if ARFID exists in cultures where fried food isn't as, yeah. as available. Um, but yeah, cause I mean, some, some of these folks don't like French fries does seem to be a common thing, but some of them it's more like crackers or bread products or right. things like that. And I know like, um, like bulimia, the prevalence tends to vary, or it seems to be more culturally bound, whereas anorexia is prevalent across all cultures. Oh, that's fascinating. Like um, generations. Uh huh. So, so bulimia is more connected to like cultural messaging and, and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, wow. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see like once they start getting more research on right. this. But um, most of the people that I spoke with described this ARFID as like this same like phobia or fear of food, uh, like the same way that Robert and Morgan just described it as sort of like a, a, a debilitating anxiety associated with food, which was confusing to me because it's not like it's not an anxiety disorder or like listed in the DSM. It's not listed under like anxiety or phobias. It's an eating disorder. Mm. Um so I didn't know, like, if other eating disorders, like, or anorexia and bulimia, like, are they usually associated with anxiety? Linked to anxiety. For some people, disordered eating behaviors are often a coping mechanism or kind of way of avoiding any sort of extreme emotion. So that may be anxiety or it may be, you know, extreme depression or, you know, stress, social anxiety. I mean, I always find with food, like, it's interesting as, as something that you can control, you know, that's why it's kind of the first act of rebellion of a toddler. Like no one can really force you to eat, um, at least not sitting at the dinner table with your parents. And so in a world where there's so many things that you can't control your brain kind of locking into something that you can, um, what makes ARFID so different is that there's not that overvaluation of, shape and weight that comes with the other eating disorders and takes up so much brain space and is such a large part of a person's existence. So Morgan has an anxiety disorder and that affects her ARFID, but she also has a sensory integration disorder, which seems to be sort of tangled up with her ARFID as well. So sensory integration disorder is being really sensitive to, I guess, just sensations like I didn't used to be able to wear certain socks or I would get upset if the tag on the back of my shirt was touching my back. Um, And so I 
assume that that has something to do with my sense of taste or texture in my mouth being elevated. It's usually textures or intense tastes that make it really difficult for me to eat the food without gagging or feeling fear. The sensory sensitivity seems to be uh, pretty common with folks with ARFID. Robert doesn't seem to have it, but I spoke with Aaron Kreck, whose 10-year-old son has ARFID, and he, he seems to have it as well. He is extremely smart kid. He's learning coding on the computer and just coding in his video games, building things online. He is very academic. He loves math, but he will also argue that he loves recess too. Erin describes her son as having superhero senses. He is always heightened. He's always on alert, and his senses are really sensitive. He can smell things that I don't necessarily smell, especially when it comes to cooking and foods in the kitchen. He can smell things. He is uh, repulsed by certain smells more so than than the average person would be. Uh, The sense of touch, he is very sensitive to. When he was young, he would have trouble walking in sand or grass or anything different on his feet. As he grew older, the tags in his clothes, clipping his nails, even brushing his teeth, everything is so sensitive to him that it's very difficult just to get those basic tasks done. Yeah, I remember reading on your blog about how it was a victory for um, him to be able to shower by himself because he doesn't like the sensation of like water on his face or on his head. Swimming lessons was very difficult for him. We had to enroll him in private lessons. It had to be in a very warm pool. And again, that just led up to uh, just calming those senses Mm -hmm. And to get him to be able to handle, you know, water running on his face. It's still a challenge, but he's, he's much further along than he used to be. Yeah, so it's interesting because it seems like, you know, there, there wasn't this ARFID diagnosis until a few years ago. And you can see how it, like, would often be dis- misdiagnosed as, like, OCD or, like, an autism spectrum disorder. Definitely. I was surprised when reading about it to even find that it was categorized as an eating disorder because it it seems to fit more with these more anxiety autism spectrum yeah it'll be interesting to see like as they learn more about it like if they move it you know Aaron's son has a very limited diet and like Morgan it's mostly bread products for my son it's it always has been the dry crunchy food so it's chips cold cereal it's cookies And everything does seem to be brand specific. So even within those categories, there's very specific brands of foods that he will eat. He also drinks chocolate milk. He, on occasion, will eat French fries. And that is, for the most part, our go-to if we go out to eat. So he is extremely limited. That list is his list. It's been extremely hard on me personally because I do have a background as a fitness professional and I am also certified as a holistic nutrition coach. And the foods that I desire to be in my home and the foods that I want to serve for meals are not the foods that I necessarily get to. So there are a lot of foods in my house that I don't agree with my son eating, uh, going grocery shopping for me is extremely difficult. My cart is filled with foods that I don't want in there. It's something I've had to really just let go of. Um, so as someone, you know, as someone who's, who's studied nutrition and, and health, do you have concerns about the limitations Yes, I absolutely, I've always had concerns, and knowing what I know makes it worse. (laughs) If I really sit and think about it long enough, I can make myself cry, but the fact is he, he is currently healthy, and I don't know how he's healthy on what he eats, but his body has adapted to it. He has yearly checkups 
And each year, there's nothing found that is an issue with his health. My personal observations, I find him lethargic more so than the average 10-year-old. Mm-hmm. He just very low on energy. He doesn't want to do long bike rides and really any kind of sports or physical activity. He just gets tired. Morgan also noted feeling like really exhausted and she thinks it uh, affected her growth. She's supposed to be taller than she is and that it delayed her period and puberty. I know, like the, for, for folks with sense, yeah. yeah, for folks with like anorexia or bulimia, that's those seem to be like common things that they might have because of malnutrition as well. Robert didn't think it affected his energy, but he has had like a lot of gastrointestinal issues that he thinks are linked to ARFID. Um, and he he recently had a total colectomy. Wow. So there isn't really a gold standard treatment right now because ARFID has only been a label since the DSM-5 came out in 2013. Dr. Atiyah was one of the folks who worked on defining this disorder for the DSM-5. She said it was challenging because there's so little information about it. A condition on which ARFID is based, something called feeding and eating disturbance of infancy and early childhood, was described in the previous psychiatric diagnostic manual, dsm 4 but no one looked at it. No one paid attention to it. No one used it as they were assessing a patient or billing. There wasn't a single publication about this previous condition. And those of us who worked on the work group trying to help DSM-5 be more useful for clinicians um, were asked to take a look at that old category and do something with it. And so we did a fair bit of surveying and helping clinicians in the trenches, in the pediatric clinics, in the gastroenterology clinics, tell us what it was they were seeing. And we crafted this category. And We are hearing that it is useful, that we're finding it in uh, the clinics where we would expect to find it, but we don't really have those national numbers yet. We don't know how many people in the U.S., for example, are afflicted with ARFID. We will soon. Because there hasn't been enough research to develop a set treatment that clinicians use, now it's more of just taking, trying to take a stab at different techniques that might work. Because eating is a behavior, and because we've got many behaviorally focused therapies, uh, there are many clinicians and several researchers who are trying behaviorally focused psychotherapy to try to help people with ARFID. For example, I had uh, seen a a young patient, uh, she was 11 years old, very afraid that she might vomit. She hadn't vomited, uh, maybe ever in her life, but she was very convinced that eating could lead to vomiting and this would be so upsetting to her and so embarrassing that um, she refused to eat foods and she got into a lot of real difficulty with consistent growth and with her weight. The treatment, I, I grasped at straws, but I knew I had to help her move more comfortably toward eating and tolerating the worry, right, that she might vomit. We got to the point of using vomit-scented jelly beans, and we agreed together that coming into the room with those jelly beans, getting to the point of smelling those jelly beans, and ultimately being willing to laugh out loud and taste those jelly beans were something that she was willing to do in the service of becoming less afraid and moving toward eating and tolerating her fear. And it worked. And these behavioral strategies of figuring out how to expose someone to the kinds of things that they're worrying about are probably a piece of what's going to turn out to be useful. I mean, are behaviorally focused treatments, is that like common with eating disorders? Definitely. For anorexia, bulimia, and binge eating disorder, there are often fear foods, foods that, in the case of anorexia, people avoid for fear of gaining weight, or in the case of bulimia and binge eating disorder, there's also that fear of gaining weight, but but in addition to that, a fear of binging mm-hmm. and the idea that certain foods will trigger a binge. And so part of the, the treatment of that particular symptom in cognitive behavior therapy for eating disorders is to have 
the, the client bring in whatever their fear food is and eat it in front of the therapist oh, yeah. um, and kind of go through a sort of exposure therapy that way. Um, so it, it makes sense that they would use the same kind of approach with RFID. Yeah. Um, so Morgan says that she went through a bunch of different types of therapy growing up. Some of them were helpful. Some of them weren't. One of the ones that she says was not helpful was she spent um, a month in an outpatient program. So like eight hours a day in a eating disorder clinic, but she was the only ARFID patient there. Most of the people there had anorexia and bulimia. They wouldn't let me get up from the table unless I ate all my food. And that kind of method isn't effective at all, but like slowly introducing things to me and not requiring me to eat an entire plate um, tends to work. So one of the things that did work, though, for Morgan is she went to a behavioral therapist who worked with her to learn to eat through a form of exposure therapy. Um, I didn't used to eat pizza either because it was different. Like there was the sauce and the cheese and the crust and like just a lot of different things happening at the same time. So they would break down the pizza into different parts for me and I'd get used to different parts of the pizza and like slowly I'd eat more and more pizza until through repetition I became able to eat pizza and now I eat pizza all the time. This therapy was like so hard for Morgan, but like this also does sound like my dream therapy. <laughs> just like right, yeah, terrifying for other yes, people. Yeah. yeah, terrifying for a lot of people, but also some people are like, hmm, yeah, go to therapy, eat pizza. <laughs> um, exposure therapy seemed to work uh, in some ways for Morgan, but it doesn't necessarily work for everyone. All of the therapies have been learning experiences. That's something that um, I had to get good with because there are many therapies we've done that I've maybe regretted and felt that I've put my son in a position where it made his situation worse. Um, feeding therapies, they call it exposure therapy. I believe that therapy has a purpose, but not necessarily at the beginning of treatment. That is a therapy where you're exposing them to food, and, and he in particular was getting activated or triggered. His trauma was triggering every time we'd bring him to therapy. He ended up uh, crying and just kind of kicking and screaming when we would take him to his therapy session could really tell that it wasn't working for him. Going back to exposure therapy with other eating disorders, that's usually done pretty far into treatment when someone is are, has already established regular eating patterns and has a has a formed bond and close relationship with the therapist. It's not something you start yeah. with. Yeah, oh, that's interesting. I wonder, I hadn't really talked to Erin about this, but like, because she mentioned that she thinks it could have a place like, you know, yeah, yeah, I saw yeah that. but that like it was maybe too early. But okay, so Aaron was using specific language here that I didn't really understand at first, but she was referring to a trauma. She actually means a traumatic event that that she thinks caused her son's ARFID. Yeah, and I I mean it sounds like there's still not enough research to know exactly what causes the disorder. We're still not sure what causes other eating disorders. Yes. Um, and it's likely not one thing for everyone. Yeah. But uh, it's interesting. It does seem like most cases of ARFID start in early childhood. I mean, it was the case for everybody that I spoke with. Morgan's ARFID started at age two. Robert, it occurred when he switched from liquid to solid foods. And Aaron's son also began showing signs when he switched from liquids to solids, refused to eat those mushy baby foods. Okay, so I, I want to introduce a new voice now. My name is Dr. Kim DeRay. And I'm a psychotherapist. My specialty would be trauma healing. So we talk a lot about CBT on this podcast, cognitive behavioral therapy. So Kim borrows elements of CBT, but the primary work that she does is called somatic experiencing therapy, which is an alternative form of therapy. Somatic means related to the body, you know, instead of the mind. The idea behind somatic experiencing therapy, and I'll, I'll try to explain the best I've can. I've just learned about it as well doing research for this. But so it's the idea that your body holds on to stress caused by a trauma 
that can lead to negative consequences. So especially when something might like trigger or activate you. Uh, so that would be to remind you of the traumatic event. Dr. Kim works with her clients to calm them down and relieve that, that stress that they have when they're activated. So, so for example, like the traumatic event is like a car accident or something like that. Um, if you hear a sound or have an experience that like reminds you of that car accident and you're triggered, you might like freeze up and panic. So in that case, Kim might work with those folks to figure out how to calm down when you're, when you're feeling triggered through somatic experiencing therapy. Actually, she works with a lot of folks who have ARFID, including Aaron's son. And she says that she thinks she's found a somatic link between the cases she's worked with. Swallowing amniotic fluid, getting stuck in the birth canal, and or a cord around their neck. And then the parents reporting that from the very beginning, yes, there were food issues. Or when the, the infant changes from pureed foods to solid food, that's when they notice it the most. Kim does say that it's a pattern that she's noticed in folks that she's worked with. And it's interesting because Erin had this experience with the birth of her son, so it makes sense to her. Uh, I believe that his trauma was at his delivery. Uh, when he was born, it was both traumatizing to him and myself. He was stuck under my pelvic bone. They were suctioning him. Uh, he had the umbilical cord wrapped around his neck. And it is my belief that he, as he was going through the birth experience himself, believed that he was choking and dying. And when it came time for him to begin eating foods where he needed to chew and swallow, that his body actually remembered this trauma and did go into that fight-or-flight response. So it's, it's really challenging to find a therapist who has regularly worked with ARFID patients before just because it hasn't, you know, it hasn't been around for that long. But Erin says working with Dr. Kim has been really helpful. So I asked her how she helps folks with ARFID open up to new foods. She used this example of the first ARFID patient that she treated. So I lovingly call the first ARFID patient that I had a French fry boy. He came to me at 14. He had cardiovascular disease, pretty severe. In fact, um, a cardiologist is the one that referred him to our agency. And he also had osteoporosis, which is pretty severe for a 14-year-old boy. But this is why from the time he was two until the time I saw him at 14, he only ate French fries. And as brand specific, which is very ARFID in and out burger French fries. So he had two French fry orders for breakfast, two for lunch and two for dinner. And you can see that someone who only had that from the time they're two to 14 would have cardiovascular disease and, and he was morbidly obese and osteoporosis. So during this time that I was working with French Fry Boy, I started to go to the somatic experiencing trainings. And from there, I bridged this piece that worked for these ARFIDs. So Dr. Kim said that one of the first somatic things she does when she sees a patient like this guy, who the guy who only eats French fries, um, is that she'll do this form of acupressure on their adrenal glands. Adrenal glands um, are right up uh, on top of the kidneys on your lower back, and they produce hormones like adrenaline um, and cortisol, the stress hormone. So she says that she'll do this form of acupressure and sort of turn off or slow the production of those hormones so that it's easier for uh, the, the clients to, to talk about what's going on with them um, in a way that won't make them too stressed. The adrenal piece is the first piece I do with any ARFIDs because it's hard to do any work when somebody is so anxious that they almost have amnesia. <laughs> they can't. They can't even really form a sentence. It, they go into a place without a voice. Uh, as I understand it, once they're calm, they start this process that she calls food graphing. Okay, so I'll work with three of the sensories: sight, smell, and touch. I don't have them taste and 
they can listen to hear what food sounds like, but we don't do that. So we'll start with the sensation that, you know, whatever is least triggering for them. So, so maybe that smell. And then she'll so, show them a piece of food that she takes out of a bag. And then together they, they, they create a graph. Um, you know, something is disgusting on one end of the graph and then something is favorable on the other end of the graph. So like with the French fry guy, um, if he started with smell, um, the French fries would obviously be like favorable to him because that's all he eats. Um, and then a lot of foods would smell disgusting to him. Uh, but there would be some foods that didn't have a super offensive smell and they would be more in the middle. So they would do the process, you know, this graphing with the other two senses and then figure out which foods would be most tolerant. And when we're done, we have these foods lined up in this bar graph. And then I ask them, where is the cutoff point of things that you will not right now ever, you know, would, would have? And where's the part where you would, you would be curious about? It's interesting, like with with sight, Robert was saying before that he wouldn't eat white foods, mm. like white foods freaked him out. So that would probably be off his list, but he might react to another color. Dr. Kim was saying that like she um, worked with one patient who was interested in orange foods, huh. like seemed to respond favorably to that. So that was like a place to go. So the graphene is kind of helping people understand their own disorder a little better. Yeah, that's right, interesting. To see, yeah. oh, I, I recognize that, that white foods are particularly repulsive to me, and that's just good information. Yeah, and just identifying patterns, yeah. yeah. Uh, then they do this work on visualizing what it would be like to eat those foods, to prepare them to eat new foods before they actually eat it. First, they like visualize eating the food that they're comfortable with. So, you know, with the, like, with the French fry guy, that would just be, you know, visualize yourself eating French fries. We would imagine eating a food that was real favorable and then work at imagining keeping that open and then imagine having a challenge food and, and chewing that. And so that's what we worked with for a long time. We used imagination far longer than when we started testing the real deal. For him, he picked strawberries as his first new food. Mm -hmm. using the graphing that's what he picked which was really interesting to me because i was thinking like he would pick like crackers or another bread right. product or something but that's that seems to be what he chose and she says by the time he left his care after seeing him once a week for two years he had added added five new meals um wow and was no longer just limited to french fries which for him was yeah <laughs> kind of a matter of life and death yeah yeah I'm just, i mean he had osteoporosis he had all of these issues um Aaron's son actually, you know, has been working with Kim and uh, he was recently introduced to uh, nuts, which she was really excited about because, uh, you know, that's a source of protein. Yeah. Um, so he was eating nuts for a little while, but then it's, it seems to be something that he's not super comfortable with yet. So um, he's actually taking a break from therapy now, which was Interestingly, a commonality among everybody that I spoke with, Morgan is taking a break from therapy right now. She's in college, and I think she, it's her first like time to that she's been out of therapy in like years, wow. and she just sort of like wants to take a to chill and eat what she wants to eat. I yeah. guess like lots of college students. Um, Robert isn't in therapy either. He said it, it's challenge. It was challenging for him to find someone close to home that like who who works with folks with ARFID. Yeah, and there, there's some research in progress regarding, like, treatments, potential treatments, uh, but there's nothing, like, definitive yet. But uh, we'll make sure to update you as we go. It's incredible to think about how a disorder like ARFID, I mean, like, all eating disorders would affect so many areas of a person's life. I think our culture and community is so centered around eating and food and enjoying meals together. Yeah, I mean, I was, I was thinking... Whenever I meet up with a friend, it's usually, okay, dinner or drinks, brunch, lunch, like it's always centered around food. And it's so challenging if like, you know, you have five different things that you can eat and, you know, you're uncomfortable in restaurants, like sitting next to people who are eating like new foods. Dr. Kim, her explanation of how she um, introduces new folks to ARFID or like explains what it's like is she says, imagine, um, imagine a snake on a plate, mm -hmm. you know? 
and like amplify that times 10. And then I was thinking like, I'm afraid of spiders, like I have arachnophobia. So I was trying to imagine like a restaurant filled with like, you know, spiders on plates and how terrifying that would be for me. Like, I don't know if that's the case necessarily for every, everyone with the disorder, but that just sounds like, okay, yeah, I'm not going to go out to dinner with you. Sorry. Right. And then thinking about these people in treatment and, you know, like the eating disorder clients I work with, especially around the holidays and when you're with friends and family, you can feel really under the microscope because people are, are watching to, to see if you're, you know, eating normally or not eating or. Yeah. Um, Morgan was saying that there are a bunch of different tumblers for, for ARFID folks. The current like theme is, uh, there are all these jokes about like how horrible it is to go Thanksgiving yeah. and having to deal with like extended relatives and family and stuff like that. Right. But, um, for people with ARFID, it's just like extra crappy. Yeah. Um, well, you have, you know, already this like heightened emotional environment um, and then to have to eat unusual foods or, you know, try to maintain a meal plan if you're, you know, while you're having conversations with that like weird uncle or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. while your mom is like criticizing your life choices yeah. or whatever it might yeah, be. Yeah. It's yeah, it's it's tough for this population for sure. Um, well, we hope that you guys have a nice Thanksgiving and a happy November to you, wherever you are. Like, uh, or just hang in there. Yeah, or just just hang in there. Um, subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your podcasts. You can find the show by searching group or by searching my name, Rebecca Lee Douglas. If you want to help us out, you can help us by leaving a rating and a review. You can also email us if you have a story about mental health or mental illness that you'd like to share or something that you want to hear about. You can find us at grouppodcast.com or you can join our group podcast Facebook page. If you want to learn about uh, Catherine's amazing therapeutic endeavors, you can go visit her at uh, catherinedrury.com. That's D-R-U-R-Y.com, like the muffin man who lives on Drury Lane. You can hear more about Erin's experience with her son uh, on her website, arfidmom.com. Morgan vlogs uh, about her experience, and it's hilarious and really, you know, insightful and funny. Uh, Her YouTube channel is Jam Vlogs, J-A-M-M-B-L-O-G-S. I'll also embed one of her videos where she talks about her experience with Arfid on the website. If you're someone with ARFID, you can join the group that Robert runs on Facebook. I'll post a link to that on the website as, as well. Thanks to Salman Khan for recommending this show topic. And thank you to Faith Rusk for her help with the show. Music in this episode is by The Losers. Um, I am losing my mind. They're such a great band. We'll be back. <laughs> we'll be back with soon with more group. But in the meantime, take care and be kind to yourself. Everything is okay. Never really heard of it. What is it called? Groats syndrome. And what does it do? Well, it's a nervous system syndrome that makes people extremely excited and nervous. My niece has it, like Dick having Groat. tons of coffee Dick or Dick Groat, named after Dick Groat, the, the guy who used to play shortstop with the Pittsburgh Pirates. I know, because he was a bald guy, and he didn't uh, feel very well, because he was uh, very excited all the time. And he, he would... Is that it? Would, no, it, the doctor that initially diagnosed it uh, was named Groat. You sure it wasn't Dick Groat? Yeah, I'm pretty sure. Dr. Groat might be Dick Groat's father, for all we know. No? No. My niece has it, and... You might want to check into that.